You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Um, today's focal passage is in John 16, 16 through 24. Um, if you need a Bible, there's some back by the Connect desk or the Red Tree, so feel free to grab one or read along with me. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That was a great reading, Tammy. Might have you come back up and read that when I have to read through it in just a second. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. If you would, uh, as the children are uh, exodusing from this space into the the great divide on the other side of that big wall, um, would you pray with me? God, thanks for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that we get to sit under your word as our authority. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you shine bright, you illuminate, that's, that's what you do. Would you do that today, and would you let me and my words um, be clear? Would you let me not be a distraction to your glory, but would you be with us and near to us, that we might be transformed by the truth and the power of your word today as we figure out what it looks like to find you as the hinge that converts our sorrow to joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Defeat and victory, realities that bring floods of emotion in a thousand ways, some subtle and some huge, uh, sorrow and joy and every emotion in between, two outcomes that define history. Uh, Some of us personally and some of us uh, globally, uh, high school rivalries, right, Defeat and victory, sorrow and joy, world wars, defeat and victory, sorrow and joy, family game nights, 
defeat and victory, sorrow and joy, and family feuds. Defeat, victory, sorrow, and joy. And families, some of the more notable, uh, Romeo and Juliet invites us into the lives of the Capulets and the Montagues and the family rivalry there. And, and West Virginia has for us the Hatfields and the McCoys. I spent uh, four days this week in a side-by-side with my dad and brother hanging out in a cabin, literally just, just smoking through the hills of West Virginia. So it was pretty sweet and had some really good times and saw a lot of stuff that I'm sure I'll get to share over the years as illustrations come from those things. Uh, one of the things that we saw, we, we kind of took a detour. The, the whole area is the Hatfield and McCoy adventure area. And so there are lots of trails, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. We were there in the middle of the week, and I'm pretty sure we were the only ones there. It was incredible. But we detoured it at one place, and we saw the Hatfield Cemetery. Hit that up there on the screen. So it said it was life-size. He looks rather miniature, if that's life-size. But like three feet tall. But anyway, uh, so, so there were just tombs all over the place. And it was, it was kind of surreal to see the tombs of those who died by the hands of the McCoys, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Each tombstone, a great loss for uh, Devil Ants Hatfield, that's his uh, nickname, and his family, the one honored by that statue there. And then each of those tombs, a victory for Randolph McCoy and his descendants, right? Tensions arose during the late 1800s around a a pig theft, alleged theft, and some injustice in the courts, and love triangles, and bitter feuds, and wins, and losses, and victories, and defeat, and sorrow, and joy, and lots and lots of bloodshed. One writer for the History Channel says it this way, says, the Hatfields and McCoys, mere mention of their names, stir up visions of a lawless and unrelenting family feud. It evokes gun-toting vigilantes hell-bent on defending their kinfolk, igniting bitter grudges that would span generations. Now, most of us, to my knowledge, are not engaged in infamous 200-year-plus family feuds. But we do live from laughter to tears. We do live from victory to defeat. We do live from joy to sorrow. And Jesus engages the matter of defeat and victory and sorrow and joy. In John 16, he continues his kind of final words with his disciples. He's been doing this for a couple chapters. And, and the end is near in, in both our journey through the gospel of John and the life of Jesus here on earth through the pen of John. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is the hinge that converts sorrow to joy, right? Jesus is the hinge that converts sorrow to joy. He is the difference maker. He tells them that, that in their context, this weekend, they will experience what seems to be defeat followed by victory, and their emotions will swing wide from sorrow to joy, and he hammers home that he is their joy today and forever. R.C. Sproul, he, he kind of sets it up this way. He says, so it is when there's conflict and competition, and Jesus was talking about the supreme conflict the conflict that pitted him against the world, the flesh, 
and the devil, not devil ants, that's another one, who, who, wouldn't wait for Jesus, uh, who couldn't wait for Jesus' blood to be spilled on the cross and for his corpse to be put into the tomb. His crucifixion and death would unleash a flood of jubilation for those who had hated and plotted against Jesus for three years. Jesus said, the world is going to be throwing their hats into the air tomorrow, but for you, there will be grief, lamentation, and tears. Right? In, in the next passage, uh, next week, Pastor Scott, he will, he will hit on kind of uh, the, the victory which transcends all sorrow, but here he meets us in this difficult and, and maybe even more relatable place. We just have to take him at his word. They haven't seen all that we've seen. They haven't seen uh, the resurrection. They haven't seen the cross. They don't know what he's talking about. They haven't seen him ascend into the heavens and, and claim to rule and reign. They haven't seen any of that. We see that, so we're trying to sit with them where they are to take him at his word and to let his word and his promise alone shape all of our waiting until the finale of all that is to come. We are nearsighted by the cross and we are farsighted by his return. So what we'll see uh, in, is, is this. The first thing is, is this. Sin brings sorrow. It couldn't be more simple, and it couldn't be more true. Let's read this, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. This is, I think, like, now you see me, now you don't. That's basically what he's saying. As some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. Like, they're like, what is he talking about? And next week, literally, if you read ahead, don't do that yet. Uh, if you read ahead, it's like everyone in the room is like, finally, you're making sense. We get it. But that's not what we're seeing right here. They're, he's not making sense. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? To be clear, most of the time when that little phrase is used in Scripture, it's like bad things are about to happen. Like in a little while, oh, this is not going to be well. <clears throat> so in a little while, we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. You ask him. No, you ask him. I'm not. I, I asked the last question. You ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Again, we have the cross, the tomb, resurrection. They don't. They're just like, what? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Again, those are not promises that you have on coffee mugs. But they're equally true. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Right? He, he just lays this foundation of truth that, that sin will bring sorrow. And you may right now be thinking otherwise. Right? Maybe you don't know even what that means. Maybe you think that, that sin represents a type of freedom which brings delight into your life, which brings fun or satisfaction or like when I live in, in such a way, uh, a law unto myself, outside of all of this stuff that you think is restricting you from real life and the fullness of life, you might think, man, that's, 
That's real living. Or maybe it's your image of what sin is that's the problem. Maybe it's, it's your heart that's enslaved to sin, but you think that you're free. And Jesus tells us in a thousand ways that you are not free. You're a slave and you don't even know it. Maybe it's enticement of how the world markets itself that makes you think that freedom from God is the good life. And look, I get it. In my flesh, there are times when I think, man, I don't want this. My heart wants something else. And, and we have to fight through that. See, sin is a symptom of the heart, which shows up in the mind, and it's, it's evidenced by the hand. And that can show up a thousand ways, but those three things, the heart and the head and the hand, they all play together. And sometimes you're like, is the battle here or is it here or is it here? And I think it's from our heart that even our thoughts race. And so we get to wage war against sin in our, our, our minds before it shows up in our actions. Sin is, as we might know just commonly, a lifestyle of rebellion, scheming, indulgence, hatred, arrogance, racism, humiliating or, or minimizing or belittling others, living just in a, in a stingy way or, or I, in an idolatrous way. That's what the Bible says, that, that you have other gods before me. And they might be really simple things like security or comfort or money. And they might be things like that you put all of your heart and your soul in to protect or to preserve apart from the Lord. And maybe it's just gossip and maybe it's just lies or lust or greed or defiance. But, but all of those things really show up in this way. It's living as if God isn't. That's what sin is. It's living as if God is not. And when we think that's true, then sin doesn't even have to show up in our hands. But, but in this truth, sin brings sorrow, is wrapped up every moment where brokenness shines through. All of your pain all of it from since you were this big till now all of your pain all of the why must it be this way all of the heavy tears of despair all sickness all violence disappointment all the bad kinds of of loss all atrocity torture decay all disaster and and all the why bad things sin is the culprit and it's the answer to every why can't we have nice things it's death's sting Every broken part of every broken thing is fruit nourished and grown from the seed and the root of sin. All of it. So the context for Jesus' words here, I'm leaving, you'll grieve. He's been saying that, right, for a couple paragraphs now in this kind of last words discourse that he has. I'm leaving, you will grieve, sorrow will fill your heart, I, I promise. The world will rejoice, 
you will suffer in, in L. You will feel defeat. He's further kind of teasing out these things that he's been laying down for a long time. The, the, the world and the kingdom of God dynamic. That they're pitted against one another. And you can't be loyal to both. They're opposed to one another. They have different kings. So we get to determine who our king is. To whom our heart gives its, its most divine, devote allegiance. The things of this world or the, the Lord who set it all in motion. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And so what that means, whenever he says truly, he's like, for real though. That's what he's saying. For real though, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Life in a nutshell in Christ, huh? The worst news ever is about to hit them in less than 24 hours. Jesus, Savior, the one Messiah, the hero, the forever ruler, the forever king. He will suffer at the betrayal of religious Jewish leaders and he will die by the hand of Roman soldiers. See, we know something they don't. But, but don't miss this justice for all of the brutality of all that this world brings all of it is about to be paid for on the cross by Jesus. And if it's not, then whoever doesn't trust his payment to be enough will pay for their own sins. And, and your bank account, it, it can't cover that. And what the Bible says in a thousand ways is, is your righteousness account, it, it won't last. It won't stand. It's just burned up. You can offer nothing that would settle accounts to the sin that you've already in your life committed against the Lord. All of us. This is true for everyone who ever is. And, and so what we see is, is sin breaks stuff. Right? Sin brings sorrow in. And his victory... He defeats the power and the works of sin. And again, next week, Pastor Scott will kind of jump into this, and I only say this one little thing to help us kind of hang on to this, that we live in the in-between of some realities that, that are done and some realities that are yet to be clarified and yet to be seen. Sin wrecks things and it brings sorrow. And when we read about, when we consider, when we pray as we do, and, and when we pray in thankfulness, we get to lament the brokenness brought by sin as seen in Christ on the cross. But just as Jesus didn't stay there, the sorrow we feel today, it won't last forever. Jesus is the hinge that converts Sorrow to joy. And the second thing that we see is that Jesus brings joy. He helps the preacher by giving an illustration. <laughs> when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish 
Is that true? I understand my limitations. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Right? In just a week, he's literally talking about a weekend. And just to be clear, he's talking about the sorrow that will come from the cross and the joy that will come from from seeing him risen in, in resurrected human form three days later at the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. But we get to stretch that weekend out. And, and we get to lay it over all of life. We get to sit in the sorrow that might last a little bit longer than a weekend. But we get to look forward to the joy that is to come. So he's talking about this reversal of of things. And it's one of the most prominent themes in Christ that, that he undoes all the broken stuff and he restores it to where it ought to be. See, I was in the room when the doctors cut open and, and laid my wife's organs on her chest and pulled out some babies, right? One at a time, one, and 13 months later, another. I, I was... I was there for the recovery that took weeks and months, and, and still scars remain. I know many other women who have given birth naturally and in other ways, and, and in every instance makes me thankful for mothers and glad to be a man. <laughs> right? I, Jesus is saying these words. I'm not up here like, you know how hard it is, right? He's... He's, he's suffered a bit, right? So, but, but what he's saying is, for all the pain that a mother endures, the sorrow of the, the fear, the unknown, the intensity of childbirth, when, when all goes well, on the other side of that, there's the joy of a child. And he's saying, Similarly, when you look at that three-year-old or 10-year-old or, or, or whatever, we know that it's not really <laughs> gone. But some of you sign up to do it again. And so there's at least that, that you think it's like a worthwhile adventure, right? <clears throat> and so he's just setting that before him. That, that's, he's, he's, he's using this to prove his point that there will be sorrow and there will be joy that overshadows that sorrow. That's, that's what he's wanting them, wanting us to see. In all the confusion of a life in Christ, it's easy to forget the simple implication of Christ's work. Joy. Did you know that you can be supremely devoted to Jesus and enjoy your life and be a joy to those around you? To have joy when no one's around even in your suffering. And, and I know it's been said a, a thousand times in a thousand ways, but we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet because we know how it, how it all ends, how it wraps up. That is the joy that is set before us. And we, don't all, we don't know all things, but we know many things. We know the way that things were. We know that, that uh, sin came and wreaked havoc. 
We know that God did not sit idly by, but he engaged that. He gave us a way out, salvation, as it were, from our sin and from ourself and from judgment, from the, the wrath of God, from justice. He invites us into a life with him, a life where he rules and reigns, and it's not just that we just get to like wait until one day when he calls us all home, but we get to live in light of those realities here, now, and in every day of life. That, that's what he's inviting us into, that we get to live a life of joy because of all the pain in life, joy sometimes seems scarce. And so the question is, is joy a pursuit or is it the result of something? The Bible talks about it as a fruit, which means it just shows up because of what type of tree it is. I think it's both. It's something that we get to fight for. And it's, it's, it's something that we get to live in because it's completely secure. Joy is. In, uh, in the kingdom, Jesus reveals it's, it's the result of our understanding of kind of greater themes at work. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness, but in that, it's an emotional story about a dad who loves his son, and he does whatever he has to do to, like, better his life, his lot. And he goes through some hardship, and it's really difficult. Um, but on the end, well, I won't spoil it for you. It's probably 20 years old. So um, <clears throat> to, this weekend, it was the weekend, right? I get it. So in that, uh, the guy, Christopher Gardner, he, he's, he says this. Narrating at a payphone, raining after learning that his wife is going to be taking his son away. He says this, I was right, it was right there that I started thinking about Thomas Jefferson on the Declaration of Independence. And the part about our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I remember thinking, how did he know to put the pursuit part in there? That maybe happiness is something that we can only pursue and maybe we can actually never have it. No matter what. How did he know that? So he said that on a bad day <laughs> that was uh, one of a series of, of many bad days and bad months. Of course, he was brought low in that moment. But the point of the movie is that, man, he, he works hard to win the day. And like it is full of emotion. Like it is rich. The thing about the story, and I think it's based on a true story, whatever that means in, in Hollywood, but it's circumstantial. And so you see these moments throughout the day, the little kid, he's just like going along with dad wherever he is, and he looks out the bus window, and he sees like a kid playing, and the kid's like having fun and happy, and he's like, why are, kind of like, why aren't we doing that? Why don't I get to live like that kid, smiling and joyful? <clears throat> the thing about the story is it's, it's circumstantial. And, and I get that. Like, happiness is the result of winning the battles of the day. And I'm not here to tell you, and I don't think Jesus is trying to tell us that, like, hey, like, don't be sad, just be happy. He's not saying that. He's not put on a, a, a front and just smile through it. You'll be just fine. He's not saying that at all. I, I get that. In an earthly kind of here and now way, joy is just having more wins than losses or more victories than defeats or bigger wins or the last win. 
And, and happiness or, or joy, it's yours, right? But, but Jesus sets up a joy that transcends the day's victory and defeats. It is the, the foundation, it is the ground floor of our life in him, this, that, that the work is done. And in the movie, he works hard and he betters himself and he betters his lot. But for us, the work is done. Christ is the hinge. It isn't a job. It isn't the next big thing, the next whatever, winning or losing. The foundation of our life in joy is our joy in Christ. And he's telling them, I'm going to be leaving and returning and reigning and leaving and one day returning. But it's sure And what they had to depend on is the same thing that we have to depend on, his word alone. In me, you find life. And that changes everything. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He writes from jail, and it's the most joyful letter in Scripture. He's suffering in prison And he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he's saying, I I know the foundation on which I live my life. Later on in 2 Corinthians, this is a bit lengthy, but I'm going to read this uh, anyway. It's 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the Surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Oh, that's a relief. We are afflicted in every way. And maybe you're like, yes, right? But we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So what he's saying is, is there's tension and sorrow and there's joy and there's this already that the death of Jesus would carry with us the lowest of low. But we also carry with us his life, the life that Jesus offers us. He goes on, for we who live are, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. He's just talking about all of the, the difficulty of life. It's always present. When, when we lock eyes with suffering in our body, in our relationships, in our anguish, in our situations of the day, short term, long term, he's saying this is what we carry. Death is at work in us but life in you. He goes on. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. When more people behold these truths of who Jesus is, it increases the joy of this community, the family of God. So we do not lose heart. 
though our outer self is wasting away. And look, I know there are people that literally feel that. And you sit by loved ones who, who you just you see their outer, their outer self seems to be literally wasting away before your very eyes. For the outer self is wasting away. He goes on, so we do not lose heart. The outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. They're here and they're gone. But the things that are unseen, those are the things that are eternal. It's a pretty significant chunk of Scripture for us to wrestle with as we navigate, navigate the, the broken lows of this life in light of a future glory yet to come. You will suffer sorrow, but cling to my word and find life. So how does joy and, and happiness become this deep-seated reality rather than just a pursuit that you just can't quite grasp? It's to know this, that the work is done. That Jesus has secured the fullness of life. And, and that is the hinge that converts our sorrow to joy. We get to focus on the joy of things unseen as the sorrow of, of things seen melt away. The last thing we see is this. Joy in Jesus changes the way we relate with God. I know. This is not a way to say that in three words. Sometimes you get to let the truth dictate, not just alliteration and such. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I think what we have here in this passage is, uh, the saying goes, it's the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. <laughs> so we read it like, ask anything in my name and it will be given to me. We're like, gosh, what can we ask? And what he's saying is, ask anything in my name, and it's yours. And, and he says this weird thing. When the day comes, and he's talking to them about like three days from now, well, three and a half days. Like, you're going to suffer sorrow when you see me, and you're going to reject me, and all this stuff. It's gonna have a, a bad, you're going to have a bad weekend. But then when I'm, when I'm risen, you won't even have any questions. Well, he says that because they're literally like, okay, Jesus, what are you talking about? He's like, just wait. I think the same is true for us, that we have all kinds of questions. And one day, we won't. One day, we won't have questions. We will, we will, have, we will have answers. 
And we won't even care. And so what he's saying is, uh, there's, there's this idea, I think Brian, the, the first time I, re- I read it was Brian Chapel. He talks about praying backwards. And uh, he says, like, what if we begin our, our, like, communing, our communication with God in Jesus' name? That's the thing we tie on the end, right? And if you're not, like, savvy, then it sounds like this. Jesus' name, amen. You're like, hold on, run that back. But that's the point. We pray all the things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm saying in Jesus' name, amen. But that's how it shows up. But, but what if we approach the Lord we said, in Jesus' name, here I am. So here's the beauty. You can't approach him in any other name. Oh, God, in the name of all the good works I've done this week and all the mercy I've poured out, Father, in the name of the generosity I've given to neighbor and to the local church in the name of all the hours. God, you know how much I serve. Those things don't grant you access to, to a perfectly holy God. What does grant you access? And I mean like all access pass is starting the only place that we can and that's in Jesus' name. And so I want you to think about maybe, um, maybe the way that you pray. Think about your prayers for just a second. What is the nature of the way that you pray? And some of you are like, ah, I pray like when things are really bad. It's like, okay. Well, we could work on that, but that's okay. I'm glad at least you turn to the Lord when things are really bad. <clears throat> One maybe just like quick thing. When things are really good, what if you prayed then? That's cool. What is the nature of your prayers? What is the frequency of your prayers? This isn't condemning, like, you can condemn yourself. I'm not here to do that. What is the frequency, like, what does your prayers look like? Paul says pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. I think that means a mindfulness about the Lord all the time. He's always near. So invite him into everything that's going on. What is the nature of your requests? Are they all like surface dogs toenails ants such and such all fine pray for those things job temporal things money how am i going to get my look i'm not belittling those things those are real things but are they all like that how would your prayers be shaped or reshaped if if jesus and his kingdom oriented your communication with god do they look different? Are you praying for different things? What if your prayers were predominantly kingdom in nature and not merely earthly? Would that shift the way that you pray? Right? Praying for stuff, the here and now, that's okay. God says, invite me into that stuff because I care for you. Like, please. Do that. Pray for those things. God invites us to do that. But when we pray in Jesus' name, we're going to be more grateful when God delivers. And maybe he answers us with yes. Maybe he answers us with no. Maybe he answers us with not now. And we get to delight in that, knowing that his ways are not our ways. 
And we're going to pray prayers that shape us for the fullness of joy as we invite him to let us live lives for his glory. Jesus is the hinge that converts sorrow to joy, and sin brings sorrow, and Jesus brings joy, and joy in Jesus changes the way that we relate to God. Joy in Jesus leads us to pray in the fullness of joy, not because I have to, ah, prayer, spiritual discipline, it's what I have to do. It's like going to the gym or not eating everything that you want to. But what if praying wasn't like that? What if it was a joy? Something that we get to invite God into, knowing that he is really the one that has invited us into what he's up to. All the sorrow, it has its place, but, but Jesus redeems our sorrows. He meets them at their end, the lowest of low, him on the cross, and he converts the depth of that sorrow to the fullness of joy. So imagine the, the Hatfields and McCoys, just for a second. Things are destructive day by day, filled with hatred for generations. Imagine someone saying that tomorrow there will be bloodshed and you will, you will feel sorrow, you will suffer. And if you're a Hatfield, you're like, oh, the McCoys are winning the day tomorrow. I hate that. But imagine someone saying there's coming a time where 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 none of that will be the case, and where the joy and the peace that comes from joy and justice will reign forever. I continue in that article from the History Channel. It goes like this. The feud faded. Both family leaders attempted to recede into relative obscurity. Randolph McCoy became a ferry operator. It's a fine thing to do, I think. In 1914, he died at the age of 88 from burns suffered in an accidental fire. That's not a fine thing to, to do. By all accounts, he continued to be haunted by the death of his children. Devil Ants Hatfield, on the other hand, who had long proclaimed his skepticism about religion. Remember, this is written by the History Channel was born again later in life when he was baptized for the first time at age 73. Now, I, I can't corroborate that. I have no idea. I, that's not the point that I'm trying to make. That's cool. If that's the reality, like, Jesus came to die for, for devil ants, Hatfield. And for all who call upon his name. Although the conflict subsided generations ago, the names Hatfield and McCoy continue to loom large in the American imagination. Now I want to go back to that picture of that cemetery. So there are literally graves everywhere. And it's all, I mean, hillside and whatever. But, but if you flip, right, there's death from bloodshed everywhere. Memorialized in marble and stone. But towering over that scene, this is me just turning around. You can't tell, but those crosses are like 20 feet tall. 
Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with this story or where this, this finds us, but towering over the scene, literally casting shadows on all of the death are these three crosses. And the center one, obviously representing the one that Jesus would carry to die death's defeat, to shine bright the life of joy. So I'm standing there and I'm just thinking like, gosh, this is like, it just, just hatred covers this hillside. And I turned around and the joy of sorrow covers the hillside. In the land of, of Hatfields and McCoys, sorrow runs wide and wild as the streams of West Virginia. But what Jesus says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and hear this. No one will take your joy from you. You're, you're going to suffer loss in this life. We get to behold greater truths that anchor us in such a way that sometimes joy feels like just enduring and sometimes we get to put on party hats. This joy that Jesus offers, it's not dependent upon any other thing but, but what is sure and what is spoken and what is done. And that's that Jesus is the hinge that converts all sorrow to joy. Man, the band can come on up. We get to respond however the Spirit would lead. We get to sing, certainly. Going to sit right where you are and pray. Stand up and sing. There's a prayer bench over there that we would love for you to utilize. There's someone over by that red tree that would love to pray with you about any burden that you have, anything that's going on. They would love to, to bear that with you. And if you're in Christ... Like you find yourself a part of the family of God because of what Christ has done. He has invited you to his table, to the table of the family of God. And, and we remember that and we declare that by taking of the bread and of the juice. It's really simple. You can take the little pack and it's got the, whole, uh, the little wafer on top or you can dip the bread into the cup. That's for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you've never put your, your hope and your joy and your life in, in what he has done. That's not for you, right? So we ask you to reflect and repent and respond however the Spirit would lead. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your goodness, all the gifts that you give us, just the sweetness of being able to hang out in this basement and sit under your word together. Would you shape us for your glory? Would you remind us of these truths when we suffer sorrow? And would you put before us a joy that nothing can get in the way of? Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.